All right, good morning, DBC. My name is Brian Smith. I'm the student pastor here at Dunwoody Baptist. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, uh, thanks to that one person who said woo. I, uh, don't, I don't like it when you applaud me, though. Don't do that. So I really am honored to be here this morning. Alan and Judy are driving to Texas right now with, with Reed and his mom, Mallory. And this is unrelated to the, the message. I just want to say thank you from them. I cannot imagine how difficult this week has been. Uh, and the, the service, of, the celebration of life that we had yesterday was, was powerful. And Judy and Alan both spoke. And, and the faith that they have in this season of life that they're in is staggering to me. I told 830 this, and I'll tell you as well. At the 830 service last Sunday, um, Judy sat behind me. And I didn't know that Judy could sing. Uh, but on Sunday, she was singing louder than anyone else. They lost her son, the heartbreak she was singing louder than anyone. And then on, at 11 o'clock last Sunday, I don't know if you saw this or not, but y'all know this. There's always that weird moment at the last song where like, is this a song we stand up for? Is this a song we sit down for? We're never sure what we're supposed to do. And as soon as the, the music started, Judy stood up and she led the room in worship in the middle of the sorrow. And that, that's powerful. So church, thank you so much for being the kind of church that cares for our pastors that way. Y'all made a huge difference. And I, like, I'm just, I'm honored to be a part of a church that loves and cares for people that way. So last week, Alan started a brand new series all about the vision of, of Dunwoody Baptist Church. And the first thing he told us is that there is always hope on the horizon. For, for a follower of Jesus, the best is always yet to come. And the God that we worship is so kind and he is so good that we can trust him even when we can't see over the edge. This week, I want to talk to you about what it means to love people the way Jesus calls us to love people. We, we have a mission statement. Alan quotes it a lot. It used to hang on the walls in here at one point, but I want to share it with you. Um, it maybe it'll be on the screen in a second. It says this, DBC is a place where we are passionately becoming more like Jesus, not more like our neighbors or our friends. Our goal is to passionately, intentionally become more like Jesus. And we are committed to transforming our homes, our church, our community, and the world. And this happens when we love God, we love people, we make disciples, and then we make a difference. Like I said, last week, Alan talked about loving God. This week, we're going to talk about loving people. But all throughout this series, I want you to think of those four areas of your life. Your home, your church, your community, and the world. And what does it look like to apply some of the scripture that we're reading, some of the stuff that we are teaching about? What does it look like to show the love of God that Alan preached on last week in your home? What's it look like to show it in your school or in your workplace or in our church? And what does it look like to share that with the world around us? Same idea for the rest of the series. How can I apply these scriptures, these lessons to our lives? This morning, we're going to talk about love, and it's a verse that maybe you've heard before. It's John chapter 14, verse 34 and 35, I want to share. It starts off like this. Jesus is giving a command. He says, a new command I have to love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The first, the new command that, that Jesus gives his followers is we're supposed to love each other and love people outside of the church with the same kind of love that he has. That is a huge request. That's a huge responsibility. And he goes on and he says, people will know if you're my followers, if you love the way I love. Church, our church, DBC, we could be known for many things. 
In fact, I, I bet if you talk to your, fam- your family or your friends, people that live in the community, I bet people have ideas about what kind of church we are. Some of them are great, some of them aren't so great, some of them are accurate, some are not accurate. But wouldn't it be amazing if our church was a church that was known for love? Like regardless of what someone believes, if they're in a different faith or they don't believe in any sort of God, wouldn't it be amazing if when people thought about DBC, they thought that we were the church that was defined by love. That's what they knew us for, how well we cared for each other, how well we loved and served the community that we're in. And church, your um, ability to love people, your desire to love people the way Jesus calls us to, it, it has huge impacts on people's lives. Uh, the students are tired of hearing me tell my testimony, so I, I won't do the whole thing. Um, but I didn't grow up in church. Faith wasn't part of my family uh, at all. I didn't go to church for the very first time until I was 19 years old. I got saved when I was 20. And uh, the first time I ever went to church, I came because the church paid me to come. I got $50 a week to go to First Baptist Brunswick. And I was a sound guy. I was running sound in the back, and they needed someone to run sound, and they hired me for some reason. And here, uh, here was what I thought before I started like, even being around Christians and church people in their church world. I was prepared to come to church uh, and be like attacked by car salesmen. No offense if you're a car salesman. I don't mean it against you. But I had this idea in my head that all Christians wanted was something from me. It was all about a show. It was all about dressing nice. It was all about self-righteousness. It was all about being perfect. And all they were going to do was judge me and make me feel awful and try to make me give money, right? The offering plate, when it came around the first time, I thought that was wild. I'd never even heard of that before. You're just putting money on a plate. And I wanted to steal it, but I didn't. <laughs> the... Uh, I just didn't know. And then when I got, when I got to be around believers, real followers of Jesus, I was blown away at the love they showed me. I I was a lost, rude, arrogant teenager. And and this church brought me in and they cared for me. I I remember uh, a lot of them still by name, my teacher, one of my economics teachers, whose class I used to sleep through, went to that church And I remember going up to her one day and just saying, like, how did you deal with me when I was so rude in class? And she was like, Jesus, you need him. Get some Jesus. Uh, Miss Miss Griner was her name. But the, the, the love that that church showed me when I was lost and I was far from Jesus, it started to break that stone heart that was inside of me. And church, the way you care for each other uh, that's in this room and in our small groups and our other services and all of our ministry partners, you have no idea the impact that your love can have on someone. I wouldn't be, you know, with my family, I wouldn't have the life I have if it wasn't for believers like you loving on someone who didn't deserve it and who was far from God. And and this morning, I want to share with you two moments in the scripture where we see um, love expressed in awful ways and we see love expressed in helpful, godly ways. And and here's what I learned. When, When I was far from Jesus, when I was an atheist and Christians would talk to me, I always felt like there were two uh, tensions that I was always like experiencing when someone shared the faith with me. Uh, And I I would say it this way. I think how well we love people is oftentimes determined by our mechanics and our motivation, right? Our mechanics meaning this is what we do to share love and to show love to people. And this is why we do what we do. And oftentimes the mechanic is, is obvious. We can see what people are doing. The motivation, why they do what they do, It's harder to experience, harder to see. And I want to share with you two passages from Scripture, two different women whose names we don't get to learn. They're known as the woman caught in adultery and the woman at the well. 
Um, but both of these women experience love and they experience the way faith communities respond to them with very different motivations. And so I want to I examine those two things. So you guys can join me. We're going to be in John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. Also, really quick, as you're flipping in your Bibles, um, in your Bible, this passage of Scripture will be in brackets, big rectangular brackets, or it might even be a footnote at the bottom of the page. That's because this section of scripture is not in the oldest Greek manuscripts that we have. We have really good reason to believe it should be in the scripture and, and it was there accurately and authoritatively. But if you want to have uh, like a conversation about why it's in John, where it's at, I would love to talk to you about it afterwards. Uh, so John chapter 8, starting verse 2, we read this. At dawn, he went to the temple again, that's Jesus, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and he began to teach them. And then the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. So Jesus is speaking, and there's a crowd who is gathered, and crowds followed Jesus everywhere he went, because wherever Jesus went, people's lives changed. He had this authority that was unlike anything anyone had seen, and people wanted to get near him. There's a crowd watching him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they are the religious leaders of the day, people who had memorized what we call the Old Testament. They knew it forward and backwards, and they had caught a woman in the act of adultery. And they took that woman and they stood her in front of Jesus and in front of an entire crowd of people. And and church, don't forget as we read these, these passages, these people were people just like you and me. She felt so much shame and humiliation and fear in that moment. And the Pharisees brought her there on purpose. Verse four, they say to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. And the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They asked him this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Here's what's wild about what the Pharisees are doing. The Pharisees have the correct mechanics, but the wrong motivation. The Pharisees found someone who had sin in their life and they went out of their way to bring that person to Jesus. That's the right step, church. To to truly love someone, to truly love the world and the people around us, we have to be willing to have the hard conversation of the gospel that says we've all sinned and that sin separates us from God. And then we go out of our way to bring people with sin in their lives closer to Jesus. So their mechanics were correct, but their motivations, why they did what they did was so wrong. The Bible says they brought her there to try and trap Jesus. And here's what they're hoping. They're hoping that Jesus, who who claims to be a teacher, they even said it in the beginning of the conversation, they called him teacher. Hey, you you claim to know the scripture like we know the scripture, then you should know the law says this woman must be condemned. And Jesus, if you really are a teacher of the law, are you willing to get your hands dirty? Like, are are you willing to get uh, into the process of condemning this woman? Because they were, they were ready for it. The, the, the Pharisees were motivated by self-righteousness. They knew the law better than anyone. They were smarter than you. They knew it better than you did. They made less mistakes than you made. And because of that, God loved them better. And since God loved them better, they could treat people like they were objects. And they were using this woman as if she was a weapon against Jesus because they wanted to trap him. You claim to be a teacher. You claim to know the law. Will you uphold the law? And they weren't wrong. 
That was the law that, that God had given Moses. I'll just show one of the verses. It's in Leviticus 20 or Deuteronomy 20, but this is Leviticus 20.10. It says, if a man commits adultery with a married woman, if he commits adultery uh, with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. The Pharisees were correct. She, she wasn't guilty. And they were prepared to follow through because they thought they were good enough. They were driven by their own self-righteousness. And they wanted to prove Jesus wrong. They were convinced this woman was worthless. They were convinced that Jesus was fake. And they were convinced that they knew better than anyone else. And how Jesus responds is, is radical. His, it's, it sounds so simple, church, but how he responds is radical. Verse 6, Jesus stoops down. And he starts writing in the ground with his finger. He's pausing. He hasn't answered the question. And just remember this moment. There's people. There's a crowd gathered. There's Pharisees gathered. There's this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. She is guilty. Everyone knows it. And Jesus is, is pausing. And I think he pauses on purpose. So they persist in questioning him. And so he stands up and he says to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Here's what's wild. Jesus doesn't just immediately forgive her. He doesn't offer like flippant forgiveness. Just that's fine. Don't worry about it and move on. In fact, he agrees with the Pharisees that she has committed the sin. The law of God is clear, right? That that is what the Bible taught. That's what the Old Testament taught. But what he says is, take a moment before you throw that stone and examine your own heart, Right? If there's anyone among you Pharisees who has no sin, who's never fallen short of the laws of Moses, then you throw the first stone. Take a second and reflect on yourself. And here's what they're going to find. They aren't as righteous as they thought they were. They felt better than everyone else, but when they took a moment and examined their heart, they realized they couldn't really live up to the standards they were putting on other people. And almost in this moment, Jesus is saying, are you sure you want me to apply the law this way? Do you want me to apply the law the same way to you as you were asking me to apply it to this woman? Verse 8, then he stoops down again. He gives them time to think. Continued riding in the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. And only he, Jesus, was left with a woman in the center. One by one, they examined their hearts. And one by one, they realized that their righteousness was pretty shallow. They weren't as perfect as they claimed to be, as they acted like they were, and they couldn't pick up the stones. They didn't have the right. Everyone leaves except for Jesus. And Jesus is there. He is alone in the center with the woman. And this is important because Jesus is the only person from all time who was truly sinless. If anyone had a right in the moment to pick up a stone and condemn this woman, it was Jesus. He never sinned. He never faltered. He lived up to all the laws. He fulfilled the laws. He is the only person who has the right to condemn this woman. That's why he's left. The crowd is left because they know that sin is in them. The Pharisees is left because they know that sin is in them. And Jesus is standing there one-on-one -on -one with this woman. Verse 10, he stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. That is a beautiful and a powerful moment. That's what the love of, of Christ looks like. 
But th that conversation happens so quickly. If, if you guys will allow me, I want to go on a tangent for just a moment. And I want to explain what happened, right? Jesus said, who condemned you? She says, they're all gone. He says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. It's a sentence that was spoken. But what it actually cost Jesus in that moment is unbelievable. What it cost him to tell her to, to go and sin no more, to be forgiven, that he will not condemn you like they won't condemn you. It costs him more than we can imagine. So I want to share with you a couple of verses. And this is what's happening in the moment. Behind the scenes, this is what Jesus knows he is preparing for. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 kind of gives us the mission for the whole church. Paul says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. Our job is to spread the message of Jesus. Since God is making his appeal through us, Church, this is why we have to love people. God's plan to reach the fallen world is, is us. It's you and me. The way God reaches your family, the way he reaches people in the church, people in the community, people in your workplace, people all around the world, is he has decided, he has chosen to use his people, his church. And we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, be restored to the Father. Come back home to God. And this is how God does it. Verse 21. That he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. So the Father made Jesus, who had never experienced sin, become sin for us. Not just experience what sin felt like, but become sin for us. Church, we, we know what it feels like to be guilty. We know what it feels like to live in a broken world. We're surrounded by it. We're drowning in guilt and shame and in sin. But Jesus lived a perfect life and he loved us so much. God desired us to come back home so much. He was willing to take his son and not just punish his son, but turn his son into our sin. I can't wrap my mind around that. So that, that we might become the righteousness of God. What a wild exchange Jesus is making. When he forgives this woman, he's agreeing to something so much more than just saying, go and sin no more. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, speaking of the Old Testament law, says this, according to the law, the laws of Moses, everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. When Jesus forgives this woman, it costs him. It costs him the spiritual realm. It costs him in the physical realm. He's going to bleed for this woman on the cross. Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law that started way back in Genesis 3 by becoming a curse for us. Here's the last one of the tangent. 1 John 4, 10 through 11. Love consists in this. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice of our sins. Your, your translation, instead of saying atoning sacrifice, may say uh, propitiation. And it's a word that means uh, the, the just wrath of God was satisfied in punishing Jesus. The God that we worship is a God of love. He's a God of justice. He demands justice. And the way the, the justice is paid for the sins of the world is poured out on Jesus. He's the sacrifice who was good enough to cover all of our sins. And the verse 11 says, dear friends, man, if God loved us this way, then we must also love one another. Here's what I want you to see about that conversation. Jesus was the only person who had the right to condemn that woman because he's the only person who never sinned. But Jesus is also the only person who had the right to forgive that woman because he's the only one who was able to, to pay the prices of her sin. He was willing to suffer the, the uh, cross so that he could forgive this woman. That's what was happening in that moment. 
When he said, go and sin no more, he knew the cross was before him and he said it was worth it. That's the kind of love that we get to experience. That's why we worship. That's why we gather. That's why we, we sing these songs. That's how good the God is that we praise. Amen. The King of Kings calls us by name so we can come back home. That's amazing. The Pharisees, they're the correct mechanics. They brought a person who was far from Jesus, close to him. Their motivation was self-righteousness. I, I'm gonna show you one more passage, one more story. Uh, this is uh, found in John, John chapter 4, and we're going to start uh, John chapter 4 in verse 16. And just a really quick background, because there's a lot of buildup to this moment. Jesus is, is walking in a country called Samaria, and he is thirsty and hungry, so he sends his apostles off, his disciples off to go find food, and he finds a well. It's the middle of the day, the heat of the day, and at the well there is a woman who's there all by herself. And it's interesting that she's there in the heat of the day. Women usually would wake up early and carry their, their jugs down to the well so it wasn't hot when they carried them back. Um, commentaries tell us that she was there in the middle of the day because she just didn't want to be around people. There was a lot of drama and, and conversations that she didn't want to have. She was trying to be alone. And Jesus shows up and he starts talking to her, which culturally was wild. He, sh- he shouldn't have been talking to her because of where she was from. He shouldn't have been talking to her because she was a, a woman. And they had this, this conversation. In fact, we just sang a song about it. Uh, he says, hey, give me some of your water. And she's like, okay, where's your bucket? And he says, hey, if you drank some of my water, you would never be thirsty again. And the woman says, okay, well, give me some of the water that you have to drink. And here's how Jesus responds to her in that moment. John 4, 16. He says, go, call your husband, he told her, and then come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. He's speaking to the woman, and he, he speaks into her. He tells her the sin that she's been trying to hide. Under the Mosaic law, the, the woman at the well was guilty of the same sin as the woman caught in adultery. They're in the same circumstances, the same exact situation. And Jesus, in that moment, tells her the truth, like the whole truth, the hard, difficult truths of the gospel. You're right. That's not your husband. You are living in adultery right now. The, the conversation that follows is also interesting. She switches gears real fast. Could you imagine just talking to someone, thinking you were having a nor- normal conversation, and then out of nowhere, he lays out the sin that you've been trying to hide from everybody? How awkward that would be. So she switches gears real fast, and she's like, oh, we're talking about God stuff. Where, what mountain should we worship on? And they have a conversation uh, about that, and she ends this, this moment in verse 25. She says to Jesus, the woman says to him, hey, I know the Messiah is coming. The, the one that God has been promising, who's supposed to reconcile, to, to restore this relationship. I know he's coming, and uh, we call him the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Like, I don't know who you are. I don't know what we're talking about. But one day the Messiah will come, and he will make all this clear. And Jesus tells her, I, me, the one who is speaking to you, am he. He says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that was promised. I'm the one you've been waiting for. That's why I know all these things that are happening in your life. At that moment, the disciples show up and the woman runs away. Uh, The Bible says she left her her jar behind. She ran back home right away. And she doesn't run home because she's embarrassed or because she's scared. She does something uh, amazing. John 4 verse 39. It says, now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified he told me everything that I ever did. She runs home, not because she's upset or because she's angry. She runs home and tells everybody back home what Jesus did for her. He says, here's all my sin. Here's all the stuff that he knew about. Y'all have to come and meet him. And they listen to her, right? Verse 40. 
So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. And then many more believed because of what he said. And they eventually told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and we know that this really is the savior of the world. This woman went back home and she had the same mechanics of the Pharisees. She went back home and she found people who were far from Jesus and she went out of her way to bring them closer to Jesus. And they met him and they invited him home. And then many people in her town, we don't know how many people, but people were saved because she invited those who were far from God to encounter the Messiah. The mechanics were the same. The difference was the motivation, right? Where the Pharisees were motivated by their self-righteousness, the woman at the well was motivated by a personal experience with grace. She had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Jesus where he laid out all the sins in her life and she was so blown away by that that she went home and said, y'all gotta come meet Jesus, not so we can judge him or trap him or judge you or condemn you, but because I know how guilty I am and he set me free. I met the Messiah. And it was that motivation that led her to invite people who were far from God to come back home. Church, if we're going to really love people the way that God wants us to love people, we have to follow the woman at the well's example. We have to follow her example. She had the right mechanics. As, as followers of Jesus, our job is to share the hard truths of the gospel with everyone, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it means sharing your personal sins and your personal struggles we don't approach people believing that we are better than they are. We know how much we have been forgiven and it gives us courage to share our faith with others. But we have to be willing to have the conversations, to invite people to a place where they can encounter Jesus. Maybe it's your Sunday school classes or your Bible studies. Maybe it's Sunday mornings. Maybe it's a coffee, just one-on-one -on -one where you talk with someone, but we have to be willing to have those difficult conversations and they have to be motivated because we have had personal experiences with God's grace. Church, here's what I want you to think. Uh, as we start to close this morning, I want you to ask yourself two questions. When it comes to the people in your world who maybe they have sin in their life, maybe they're struggling with something, maybe they're far from God, maybe you just don't know a whole lot about them, but you just know they're around. When you think about those people, when we talk about church, when we think about your faith, ask yourself the question, am I motivated by self-righteousness? And here, here's what that looks like. The first one's obvious, right? Motivated by self-righteousness is that comparison game that we play where we look at someone else's life and we say, man, they're messed up. Like their struggle is so much worse than mine, so I feel better about myself, right? That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were trying to prop themselves up by using another person to make themselves look better, right? So do we play that game where we look at a person's sin or their struggle or their past, uh, their circumstances, and we say, well, God must love me more because I don't have that in my life. God, God clearly likes me more because I'm more obedient and I do the things the way I'm supposed to, so I don't have the same sin that follows me around. That's self-righteousness. And it's impossible to really love someone if that's where our heart is focused. Another aspect of this self-righteousness is when we're so worried about what people think about us that we hide the truth of our faith. When we don't want to share the gospel with our classmates or our coworkers, we don't want to invite people to things where we encourage people to experience God's grace because we're afraid of what they'll think about us. That's still self-righteous. More concerned about the way people view me 
than I am about this mission that God has called us to pursue. We're supposed to be ambassadors who share the hard truth of the gospel with everyone. Or are you motivated by personal experiences with grace? Church, none of the things that we talk about, none of the songs that we sing, none of the events that we have, no amount of watermelons that Bridget throws off the gym can, can, sorry, can cause you to have a personal encounter with Jesus. Students, we talk about this. You can't inherit it from your parents. You don't get to be a Christian just because your grandma was and she prayed for you. The way we become followers of Jesus is because we have personal encounters with God. Where we lay out our sins and we ask for forgiveness of those things. And it reminds us how much we desperately need him. The way we battle against self-righteousness, like taking over our church and pushing people away from Jesus, is that we never forget how much Christ forgave us for and how much it cost us. Just like the woman caught in the adultery, my sins put Jesus on the cross. That God made his son who knew no sin become my sins, your sins, if you put your faith in him. So he could be the atoning sacrifice for my sins, your sins. And when we remember those personal, like grace moments with God, it motivates us to do this whole thing differently. We worship differently because we're not comparing ourselves to others. We worship because of what God has done. We share the gospel with our neighbor and our family and our students and our kids and our friends and our coworkers because we know what it feels like to be set free. Just like the woman at the well, she ran home and she told everyone what God had done for her. Church, if we're going to be the church in our city, in our community, who loves people well, we have to be motivated by a personal experience of God's grace. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sing a song about the love of God. And as we have this moment, I want you to pray. I want you to ask the Father to examine your heart. Maybe it's been a while since you remembered how much God forgave you of. Maybe ask the Father to remind you to soften your heart to the cost of the cross when Jesus set you free. Or maybe, church, you're here this morning and you've never fully surrendered. You've never had that personal encounter with the grace of God. And maybe this morning is the morning that you confess with your your mouth. You believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins. You say, God, I'm guilty. I know I'm guilty. I understand the true consequences of that sin. But Jesus, you said you would make this exchange. You would give me your righteousness and you would take my sin. And if you're here this morning, you can make that, that moment happen. You can pray right now. If you want to talk about it, I'd love to talk to you. I'll, I'll hang out up here at the front, and I'll, I'll talk, and I'll pray with anyone. But let's pause for a moment and ask, are we being motivated by self-righteousness? Are we being motivated by that personal experience with God's grace? Have you even had that moment yet? Y'all pray with me. Father God, I'm so grateful for the scripture. For, for your word, God, for the fact that we don't have to wait to hear from you, that we, we can open up an app on our phone or a Bible in our lap and we can hear from you at any moment. God, forgive us of the times we've taken your word for granted. Father, I pray uh, as a church and I pray for myself as well that we would be followers who are known by our, our love, our love for you. And, and God, our, our desire would be our, our motivation, the core of why we do the things we do and how we do the things we do, that all of it would be motivated from that personal experience with you. And God, I pray that's true of every person in this room. They had that moment where it was just you and it was them and they were honest and they confessed and then Jesus, you did what only you can do. You forgave. 
Jesus, you're the only one who has the right to condemn because you were the only sinless person and you're the only person who has the right to forgive because you were willing to take our sins on yourself. Father, I pray as a church we would express love, show love, spread love from a, from a motivation, from a source of that personal experience with your grace. And then God, like we said, if there's anyone here who's never experienced that forgiveness, I pray this morning would be the morning you get a hold of their hearts and they say yes to you and they pray and they pursue and they experience that life change that you and only you can bring. Father, we pray for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.